Welcome to BIB Today, the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk Point. I'm Tyler Orton. The wrap-up to this weekend's G7 summit may have delivered some pretty bad news for some of those free trade proponents out there. Right now, tensions between the U.S. and Canada, they've been growing amid NAFTA negotiations and the placement of metal tariffs. Now things look to be getting even worse following this summit. Daniel Schwannen, he is the vice president of research at the C.D. Howe Institute. He's going to join us later on to discuss the fallout from everything that went on this past weekend in Quebec. Meanwhile, Corporate Nights has released its annual list of the country's best corporate citizens. Later on in the show, we're going to talk to CEO Toby Heaps about what makes for a good corporate citizen. But first, let's talk to Daniel Schwannen from the C.D. Howe Institute. Kirk, I'd say it was a eventful weekend in the world of international trade and diplomacy. You think? I, you, I think you, so. Yeah, you sure? You yeah. Sure. But uh, look, considering... I don't know. I don't, I don't read the papers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why do that? Yeah, that's right. But considering all the tensions over tariffs among G7 members, I mean, the summit in Quebec, it seemed as if it had been going relatively well, at least on Saturday. Yeah. And that was really before everything escalated into a Donald Trump tweet storm aimed at Justin Trudeau and free trade. And now we're left with a growing sense of uncertainty about what this means for a potential trade war across the globe. Joining us today is Daniel Schwannen. He is Vice President of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Daniel, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. So is this the worst that we've seen U.S.-Canada relations in, in quite some time now after this G7 summit? At least the worst in public. Uh, you know, there have been spats, uh, disagreements, uh, even insults before, but they were uh, uh, in a different, you know, time and place and age, I would say, where, you know, people kept some of these things under wrap. Um, and now it's uh, certainly one of the worst, if not the worst, and it's, uh, it's very public. It's not just Canada, of course, that Donald Trump appears to be targeting. Do you think he's trying to destroy the Western alliance? Oh, um, I'm... I'm not sure that we're uh, we're at that point, but uh, I think he's uh, saying you know a number of things. One is uh, you know if you're my uh, ally, uh, I expect things from you. Uh, in this case, on uh, the economic front, for example, um, and he's been very clear about these kinds of uh, demands. Uh, but this, the second thing is you know, and and Canada maybe exhibit. A here, uh, as Mr. Trump heads for, um, uh, or is actually now in Singapore uh, for his imminent meeting with uh, the North Korean leader, um, and 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 that is, you know, I can be really, really tough. Uh, some would even say obnoxious to my friends, and unpredictable. So you know, I'm that tough, <laughs> you know. And um, and and maybe it's a signal he's just uh, sending to uh, to the world because otherwise, you know, uh, uh, when you look at what he's said and his advisors have said, uh, apart from the direct uh, attacks on on Mr. Trudeau that, that I think are unprecedented in public, uh, nevertheless, some of the things that they have said are are um, are are quite interesting and even even constructive. I mean, Mr. Trump talked about uh, opening the world to, to free trade. Um, yes, no barriers anywhere. Zero. No barriers yeah. anywhere. Well, right. 
uh, our suggestion here uh, is that we take him up on that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, bring it on. Uh, yeah. I mean, because uh, our our barriers uh, amount to something like 0.8 percent uh, on average, right? In terms of it, we're we're a very low barrier country yeah. anyway. Yeah, no, they're, they're, of course, yeah, we're very low. And of course, uh, barriers into the U.S. are also very low. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the reason we have barriers at all mainly have to do with our supply management uh, system um, that requires to function, you know, uh, uh, that we we really put a very high wall against tariff wall, in this case, against imports but uh, that are over quota. But... Um, you know, other than that, it's uh, it is free trade between Canada and the U.S. Uh, except when the U.S. imposes duties on on lumber and other things. And can we talk about the supply management system for a moment, though, because that has been a huge sticking point between Trudeau and Trump. And I, I do wonder, and he's even tweeting about it, Trump. But I, I do wonder if Canada removes the supply management system, d- does that mean essentially the end of our dairy farmers here? What would happen if you know? Canada gave way on this particular issue between the two countries? Well, um, we would certainly see lower milk prices um, and uh, significantly lower and um, uh, cheese and, and, you know, yogurt and other related, uh, uh, you know, pizza prices would come down. Um, Your meal at the restaurant that that includes any of these items would would come down in price. The, um, you know, and that, that would be worth, you know, it, the barriers are so high, it would be worth hundreds of dollars to the average Canadian family uh, per year. But, uh, yeah, so our, our farmers, of course, would uh, need some kind of other support mechanism, frankly, to carry them through, uh, through that transition. And I've seen studies that suggest that, uh, you know, between 30 and 40 percent of, of Canada's dairy farmers would... Uh, you know, would would eventually have to to retire or or or, or sell their farm. So it would be a major, a major. Um, uh, I would say, uh, a, a nice word would be restructuring for the for yeah. the industry. There's no question. Well, last year, of course, uh, Maxime Bernier, uh, when he was running for the Conservative leadership, really talked about doing away with the uh, the supply management program. Uh, but it is politically toxic. To recommend this, isn't it? I mean, because of the the concentration, of course, of the farmers in Quebec, but also more like a, a generational attachment to just the idea of having uh, a you know a, a thriving dairy industry in this country. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, you know, but if the choice comes down to you know between you have an automobile industry, uh, uh, which is much much more valuable in terms of the jobs or the wages, uh, the income it generates throughout the economy, you know, so if it gets to be that tough, uh, this is certainly something that in the course of negotiations, uh, I can I can see ourselves um, throwing in the towel on that. There are other countries that have done this. Yeah. Uh, we've had other industries here, like the wine industry in Ontario, that have gone through exactly that kind of a transition. They were they were given up for dead when 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 we started having free trade in wine uh, with the U.S. and the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement, and and lo and behold, now they're very successful. Canada used to be a net exporter of milk. Now we can't export, even though there's a thriving global market, because the uh, the WTO doesn't allow us to export because it's 
you know, because we subsidize our farmers the way we do. So uh, there, it, it's been done before. There, there's support that that is not uh, that is WTO compliant, if you like, uh, that wouldn't be considered a trade barrier that we can offer these farmers. Uh, of course, it would be extremely tough. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, it would almost certainly be done over a, a long period. And of course, you could expect that if we conceded that, that would be the last thing that Donald Trump would ever ask for. And he would, of course, <laughs> and, and I'm sure he would resolve uh, the large uh, subsidies that go into the, say, the U.S. sugar industry. Yeah, yeah. The sugar industry. Is, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, so uh, let's see what he means by completely open trade, uh, no tariffs, no subsidies, he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure some of his own industries have something to say about that. Um, but, um, you know, look, if there's, uh, if there's something, you know, uh, on trade, at least that, 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 you know, we're, we're maybe grasping at straws, but that is, um, something that he left the door open, uh, open to his, uh, chief economic advisor, um, uh, is a free trader. So let's see what, uh, what that can bring at the end of the day, it's possible uh, that this is uh, still all a negotiating tactic or, or, or pressure uh, to get to a deal. But your comment uh, just now, absolutely right. We can't reopen this, you know, and, and be subject to a next wave of pressure for something else five years down the road. It has to be a, a definitive deal, at least if Canada is going to, you know, give up uh, its some of its traditional positions, for example, on dairy. Yeah, but, and, and presumably, too, this sunset clause idea has to vaporize pretty quickly. Yeah. Again, um, you know, it's you know, if you sign a, a, an agreement, obviously you want it to be as ironclad as possible. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, every sovereign country has some mechanisms to get out of these agreements. Otherwise, they're not sovereign. Um, so you know, again, we can we can maybe. Uh, be creative with some of the words and some of the timelines there. Uh, the one thing you don't want in terms of a sunset clause is you don't want to give the American president, which right now does not have, uh, who right now does not have the right to unilaterally withdraw from a trade agreement because he has to uh, get approval from Congress to do that. So you don't want that sunset clause to be, if there is one, uh, first of all, you want the time to be longer than five years. Secondly, you don't want it to be uh, uh, only left to, to, to the president to implement, if you see what I mean. Um, it can't just be unilaterally uh, the president deciding on that in the, if there is such a thing um, in the future. One of the other ideas that Trump has been circling around recently would be tariffs on auto imports, of course, coming into the United States. But we look at the Canada and U.S. auto sector and their supply chains are so intertwined. How would this really work and what kind of impact would we look at, say, certainly the Ontario economy if this were to go forward? Well, it wouldn't work at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we have a study uh, coming out tomorrow that just looks at the impact of the steel and uh, uh, and uh, aluminum tariffs. Uh, so you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, much less than the auto trade, maybe a quarter of the, of the auto trade itself. Um, and uh, And even then you're talking about, you know, over half a percent of Canada's GDP that's... Uh, that's at, at stake. Um, 
So you're talking about a, a quasi-recession level, if not if not worse, uh, in for Canada as a whole, and certainly for Ontario, because it would it would put uh, you know we're not just talking about throwing a few grains of sand in the you know in the wheels here. We're talking about stopping uh, or making trade so much more expensive at the border that uh, um, you know prices uh, would would skyrocket. In both Canada and the U.S., employment would come to a halt in many plants in both Canada and the U.S. because we really rely, we ship things to each other constantly in that sector in order yeah. to make, you know, whether it's the F-150, the Ford 150 or, uh, you know, not to mention a particular company, but it's like that across all the, uh, certainly the North American auto producers. We we can't pay 25% or, or whatever the tariff would be each time we get to the border. Otherwise, uh it does not it it makes uh uh you know it makes a joke of the entire arrangements of uh, the past 50 years which has been to make things together very tightly across the border so yeah. uh we we need to be able to to continue to do that so um i you know on the one hand i don't think it's going to come to that um on the other hand well you you never know but the one thing I would say is that, and you'll see this with the steel tariffs as well, it's going to have an immediate impact uh, on uh, on the U.S. industry, and not just on 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 Canada. Though Canada would suffer more, but uh, you know, Mr. Trump would see an immediate decline in uh, in employment and rise in prices in the U.S. You know, we we've been asking this question, I think, for many months now uh, here on our program, which is at some point the U.S. consumer begins to feel the effect of Donald Trump's impetuousness, you know, that that, uh, that at some point the consumer is getting clobbered with product lines that are suddenly much more costly. Uh, I wonder, though, in this case here, whether, again, um, you know, we're, we're making a big thing of what happened over the weekend, but I wonder whether this was just part of a piece for Donald Trump in order to make sure that his Singapore meeting with Kim Jong-un is positioning him as a really strong guy that there's no no apparent uh chink in the armor kind of thing with him uh that he has to be able to do it um and, and whether this washes over with time he comes back from singapore presumably with some progress on north korea and then suddenly canada's his best buddy again that's uh that's possible i mean if you look at the whole of the weekend uh, and what was said, uh, even by Mr. Trump, the, the whole range of possible scenarios is there all the way to, you know, having, uh, having a deal on, on NAFTA if Canada puts something serious on, on the table. Yeah, he said the relationship uh, was 10 out of 10. Yeah. Like 10, what's. <laughs> so it's just one press conference away from ruining our relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the way, what's yeah. a one out of ten? I don't yeah. want to know what a one out of ten is. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't want to know. But uh, what, what, a, or, um, but, you know, I think the 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 point that um, he needed to sound tough and needs to sound tough vis-a-vis -vis his friends and allies, right. in order to be uh, seen uh, in the proper. Um, you know, to, to have the proper respect of uh, people that are potentially his enemies. Um, I think that that's part of, uh, of the strategy, undoubtedly. But uh, 
um, you know, the tone does seem to um, uh, uh, to, to change um, almost from from day to day. But it's it's very clear that they had uh, the summit with uh, you know Kim Il Jong in in mind um, when they said that Canada was you know uh, backstabbing simply for. Uh, the U.S. simply, or the president simply, for standing up for itself. So uh, they they do have that kind of uh, a show of strength uh, in mind as they approach the North Korea North uh, summit with North uh, North Korea. By the way, I, I thought I thought actually it was a front stabbing. I didn't think it was a backstabbing at all. Yeah, he actually stands stands at a podium. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not like it's happening behind the scenes. He goes right in front of reporters. Yeah, he's going to stab well, you in the front. Yeah. But yeah. did Trudeau even say anything that was particularly untoward, though? I mean, he was just or new or, or new. Yeah. No, no, no. I think it. I think it was just the timing. So, yeah. you know, uh, and and this is not to be critical of what the prime minister said at all, frankly. Uh, um, and I think there's a fair bit of consensus uh, against what he, uh, you know, in favor of what he said, which is. Uh, you know, Canada is not going to be um, pushed around, I think were his words. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you're just um, leaving, um, you know, uh, 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 if you have a, a guest that's just leaving a summit uh, and immediately after you're, you're, you're doing a press conference that, uh, you know, is uh, clearly, um, uh you know, using tough language uh, against that person, and uh, which might have been reserved uh, uh, for within summit discussions, or might have waited a little while. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think it's that kind of thing. It's not. Yeah, the, I, I, and I think that's a fair. That's, that's a fair point. I think that uh, I think that the the Americans probably felt that you know Justin Trudeau, uh, as wise as he is, could have found a way to pivot on a couple of critical questions about this because he wasn't going to say anything new. He had, he was on the record of saying yeah. that the tariffs were insulting and, and absurd. And I, you know, I'm trying to remember the exact adjectives he used, but I mean, he was very much um, in that space. So why not just kind of say, you know, we're on the record. Um, and uh, next question, you know, what fabulous yeah, next question do you have right. for me? You know? Yeah, I think, uh, but look, I'm not a PR yeah. expert. I'm uh, but uh, it, it, to the extent that the Americans um, um, violently objected, uh, verbally, of course, uh, it's and, and referred to uh, the uh, the prime minister's comments as backstabbing. It probably has to do with uh, with the timing um, mm-hmm. following Mr. Trump's departure, and um, yeah. Uh, but nothing, I think, nothing really changes except that, you know, um, to the extent that this, uh, the sour note or notes um, uh, uh, seep into the, the negotiations themselves, um, you know, at that, at that official level, uh, that, that does not bode well. But uh, with Mr. Trump, you never know. He might, might come back from uh, Singapore and... Uh, be very happy with himself and 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 uh, and want to make a deal after all, or he may need some friends. So, oh yeah, he's uh, uh, made a new friend in Kim and lost an old friend in Justin. But uh, there, them's the breaks, I guess, uh, Daniel. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. And, uh, <laughs> and these things can change fairly quickly, apparently. Sure. Well, Daniel, a fascinating discussion. I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you. That's Daniel Schwanen. He is Vice President of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Next up, Toby Heaps from Corporate Knights is going to join us to discuss Canada's best corporate citizens. So what does it mean to be a good corporate citizen in Canada? Our next guest has been analyzing companies for their commitments to everything from gender diversity to low emissions outputs to determine just that, a lot of other categories that they're analyzing here. And joining us today to discuss the latest annual rankings of the top 50 corporate citizens, it is Toby Heaps. He's CEO of Corporate Knights. That's Knights with a K. Toby, I'd like to welcome you back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Are there uh, are there a lot of Canadian companies that are becoming better corporate citizens? Is this a nice trend line that you see when you calculate this year after year? Um, well, it's interesting. We see um, in some ways we see the gap between the the top quartile, the best fifty corporate citizens out of about two hundred and thirty companies. We see the gap between the leaders and the laggards uh, growing, and so oh, okay. it's good. It's good that we um, our leaders are um, are making progress. And um, but uh, the big picture on the big picture, we still um, see uh, a lot of um, it's it's there's still there's still a lot of uh, laggards. And so, um, you know, if we it depends on what kind of metric you look at, too. So we, you, we can look at, say, CEO to average worker pay. And we've seen over the last several years, CEO pays have gone up uh, by a lot more than the average worker pay has gone up across the economy. Mm. Um, best 50 companies have fought against that that trend. Leaders have fought against that trend, but but across, you still see some worrying trends on on pension funds. You know that's critical for workers' uh, retirement security. And uh, in this past year, we saw that the pension fund gap uh, grow by about 13 billion to 33 billion dollars uh, for the uh, the cohort of companies we looked at, the, all the large companies in Canada. And so you know on, the, on those fronts, um, uh, some worrying trends. Also on the carbon carbon productivity in terms of you know, the, the carbon efficiency of companies, we saw a um, uh, a, a slight um, uh, stumble uh, backwards over the last few years on that one too, with um, greater carbon emissions from Canadian companies and um, and and uh, not 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 matched by uh, commensurate revenues. So I think I think those are those are trends that are that are good things to take stock of and and, and ask questions why and see what we can do to um, to arrest them and and uh, to reverse them. Now, if I want to wrap my head around maybe a bad corporate citizen, I'll think back to all these movies that came out in the 1980s, and there's always, I don't know, toxic waste and, and people twirling mustaches and what have you. But what makes for like a really good corporate citizen, and especially here in a country like Canada? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, on a big big picture level, it's companies that are helping to make the world a better place without eroding the foundations that make a better quality of life possible on this planet. And so in strict sort of, you know, indicator terms, think what kinds of things we measure, because when we measure this, it's all rules-based, uh, transparent methodology that, that people can replicate. That's that's a fundamental tenet to our rankings. But we look at things like, is the company paying its fair share of taxes uh, over the last five years? What's the ratio of the company's CEO to average worker pay? How much carbon emissions does the company generate per unit of revenue compared to its its peer companies? Uh, what what how much renewable energy is the is the company using? What's the safety record of the company? 
uh, with the employee turnover record, uh, the involuntary t- employee turnover record of the company, how many people are getting let go or, or leaving? Does the company have a big pension fund, and is that pension fund fully funded or or uh, sufficiently funded to give security to to workers? And so we're looking at sort of a range of some environmental, some social, and some governance topics uh, that sort of uh, stretch that stretch that gamut. And so companies that are doing well across the board, um, you know, like an ideal company might be a company that lives up to Plato's uh, uh, sort of ideal uh, wage gap of not greater than five to one. So mm-hmm. let's say, you know, there's 14 CEOs of big companies in Canada who who make uh, 10 times more than the average worker or, or less than that. Um, but there's a lot of companies that make, you know, 400, 500 times more than their average worker too. So you can see that there are some sort of pigs at the trough. Mm-hmm. And that's, I- that's, that's not a good thing. Is there uh, anything that you can correlate in terms of the uh, generational leadership of a company, Toby, where uh, there is a, a greater degree of social responsibility among, uh, say, a younger leadership or ownership? That's a really interesting question. I, um, I haven't looked at the data on that, so I, um, but I think it's a good analysis. We will, um, we do have there is data available on the age of the chief executive and also of the boards. So I think that would be an interesting um, article study to, to look at anecdotally. When I think of some of the leading corporate citizens, I mean, you have people in the U.S. like Elon Musk, but then you have people like Paul Pullman, CEO of Unilever, who's at the twilight of his career, right. you know, well into his uh, 60s. So I, I, and when I think about the number one corporate citizen this year, Hydro-Quebec, his CEO, he used to be head of Bombardier Aviation. He came over to Hydro-Quebec, took a, a big pay cut, and uh, has really um, uh, made a pretty big impact, positive impact in a, in a few years' time, um, you know, taking almost a two-thirds pay cut from what he was making before. Uh, and he's, I don't know what he is, late 40s, early 50s. Um, so I, I don't, um, I, I think that's a really interesting question, um, but I, I would um, I would guess that uh, it's uh, it probably helps, but uh, you have a lot of good corporate citizens that are guided by uh, elder states people as well. I also wonder about diversity in the workforce beyond that generational difference there, but uh, just with gender diversity as well. Are we seeing improvements in Canada with regards to more representation of women in boardrooms, executive ranks? So um, it's interesting. The, the rate of progress is, is definitely, um, you know, we have a rate of progress. I think a lot of people don't realize um, that how, how big a gap there is still and, uh, and, and when we're on track to close it. So at the, at the current rate of progress, uh, well, I think there's something like it's 24% of directors of large corporations, um, the over a billion in revenue in Canada now, are, are are female, and so that's that's way better than it was 10 years ago. And uh, at the current rate of progress, if we extrapolate uh, from the last the trends of the last few years, sometime around 2031, we'll reach gender parity at the board level. So that that that's oh. that's, that's, that's that's good news, uh, I think. Um, but when you look at the executives, the key executives, the sort of five highest paid members of companies, those folks um, are currently only only 18% of executives are are female. And the rate of progress that we're looking at right now, we're looking at something like 2058. So, you know, well into the middle of uh, the century before we get to gender parity for female executives. So there's a, there's an argument there for um, definitely for for some people to start discussing, um, you know, quotas, because I think when you have an imbalance that is that stark and it's moving that slow and the only, there's only, you know, that sometimes it requires some radical measures. And, um, and so I, I know it's definitely something that's being discussed and, um, you know, in, in, in federal, uh, you know, caucus, uh, cabinet discussions, and there is a bill that's a little bit mild, um, on quotas and, and, um, it's definitely an evocative topic, but it's, an, it's, it's only called for in extreme circumstances. And I think, you know, in terms of executive representation, that's uh, pretty extreme. 
one correlation you, you likely have in your data would be around regions in this country. And I want to know where you think uh, certain regions in the country stack up and do they tend to, uh, to somehow produce even much more uh, corporate responsible uh, responsibility in, all, really, in their midst? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, so just off the top, and, and I, I know this by just doing the numbers in my bones, it's actually really interesting um, how BC and Quebec uh, predominate in the Canadian corporate rankings that we do. Mm-hmm. And you'll have companies like Dan um, City, um, uh, Mountain Equipment Co-op, BC Hydro, Tech Resources, um, who are perennials uh, uh, leaders on our on our rankings. And when you think about the population and size of the BC economy relative to the Canadian economy, definitely um, BC companies are punching above their weight. Uh, and then you look at Quebec, and then there's a whole raft of companies that make it from from Quebec as well. And so uh, we have we have to look a little bit at the Quebec situation and some of the cultural peculiarities um, and why they might be more apropos to uh, sort of lead on on a more sort of sane, sustainable, um, uh, fair um, economic models. And um, it's interesting that you see that same thing happening at BC. And I, I mean, I can speculate on why that is, but it's um, definitely BC and Quebec companies are uh, overrepresented on, on the uh, best 50 corporate citizens in Canada. We definitely like speculation, but I mean, I, I think also, also from like a cultural perspective, I think, you know, you talk about the West Coast, maybe we pride ourselves on progress. And I think if you look at Quebec, there, there's a bit of that, I guess, European tinge to that particular province. If you would be willing to speculate, what, what's your theory here? Yeah, I mean, for me, that, you know, it's, it's it, from a just sort of common sense, does that make sense? It totally makes sense to me. And you know, anybody who has spent uh, any time or worked uh, in, in Quebec or, or BC, um, and I've spent a fair bit of time in both those provinces, that, that totally checks out for me. And it's not, not, not surprising that you see companies from um, BC, which is a little bit more laid back, uh, really connected to nature. Um, you see DC companies um, uh, uh, prevailing more often than not. And then is by the same token, the, uh, you know, that, that European um, uh, sort of uh, cultural uh, infusion in, in Quebec, and all the all the the um, this, you know the stuff that Rene Levesque did in terms of the uh, the, the the role of large corporate ent- entities in the um, improving the, the state of the nation of the, of the province in Quebec. Um, those those things uh, have impacts, and also I guess you know you have have you have a you have a lot of family-owned businesses. Not that our rankings necessarily capture that, but that. That aspect sometimes can have a, have a positive influence on on taking a long term perspective and and uh, getting getting things right on some of these big sustainability issues. Yeah, I think we can understand the attractiveness of working out here. I think we can att- uh, understand the attractiveness of say big cities. Is there a company on your list that uh, would be a real surprise to all of us? In, say in a, a bit of an out of the way place that might not necessarily be a hub for anything particularly, but here's a company that has just figured out a way to do it well? I mean, we have some companies like Saskatchewan Telecommunications. We have a few companies actually from Saskatchewan too. Um, mm-hmm. They're a little bit overweight. Mm-hmm. And then you see Alberta and Ontario a little bit underweight. The Saskatchewan Telecommunications, um, and because we're looking at huge companies, these are companies over a billion dollars in revenue. You don't have a lot of, you know, uh, Tinyville um, <laughs> corporations making o- over a billion in revenue. Um, so you have, yeah, I would say, you know, Saskatchewan is probably this you know, Saskatoon, Regina, one mm-hmm. of the smaller areas. You have Kruger products. Um, you've got, uh, well, I guess, yeah, you've, and in previous years, this year we have Cascade. Um, you know, they they have a presence in Montreal, but um, in St. Jerome and uh, 
and uh, in rural Quebec, and and you know they, their huge commitment to uh, using 100%, almost 100% uh, recycled inputs into their uh, paper products, and uh, using renewable energy to power almost everything they do. Um, and so, you have companies like that, and Cascade is kind of an interesting example. The uh, they make they probably they make a lot they make toilet paper um, and, and and things like that. So if you're a, a a worker though who wants to fix himself up with a uh, with a corporately responsible uh, a great corporate citizen, where what's the city to go to? Is it Toronto? Is it Montreal? Is it Vancouver? Well, you can find lots of them in all of those cities. Um, and uh, but in terms of a portion of the employer base, you're probably you're probably best off. I could read around the numbers for sure, but if I had to just you know on the spot, I'd say you're probably best off. In Vancouver, uh, also really interesting. When we looked at the average salary that's paid to um, workers, and it's just you know average salary, it's not median. Um, the best 50 companies' average salary was $116,000 per year, and that compares the average salary in the Canadian economy, according to StatsCan, is something like 50, 53,000. So it's interesting that you know these companies they offer you um, you know you can feel better about the impact your company's having, but they also uh, you know they take care of business with their um, with their employees too in terms of um, of uh, uh, you know generous compensation. So a lot of people are making less than that for these companies, and, and there's a lot of people at the top echelon that are making you know way more than that. So that's an average. It doesn't mean you know that's half the people in the company are making that, but. But it's interesting how much higher that average is in the Canadian economy. Well, Toby, I thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks. Uh, been, been a pleasure. Uh, have a great summer. Well, you too. That's Toby Heaps. He's the CEO of Corporate Knights. Make sure you listen to uh, our show every day. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to leave a review and make sure you can find our stories in print and online at BIB.com. That's it for BIB today. Thanks a lot for listening.